Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that You would give Your Son. That You would love the, the world so much that You would give Your one and only Son so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for that love. Thank You for responding to our waiting and our longing and our brokenness in such a kind and compassionate way. And Lord, as we are approaching Christmas and looking through the text at the crucifixion and the trial of Jesus and holding these two things up together, I pray, Lord, that it would lead to us having a greater gratitude and understanding and that you would do important and necessary work in our hearts through it. We, we praise you for this and, and praise you for how you will answer this prayer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Back in the 1980s, also known as the golden age of color television, as I like to call it, uh, when entertainment was displayed properly in, in grainy color on a four by three ratio, one of the best shows of the 80s, at least from the perspective of 1980s Chuck, this was the, 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 the peak of public television, was 1980s Sesame Street. It, you just can't get better than that. And I would just watch this as these puppets would come to life. I learned the importance of things like the letter R um, and, and what a circle is. And they would do this killer trivia game, just absolute dynamite, where the, there'd be a two-by-two two grid and there'd be four objects. And one of these things was clearly not like the other. And they had a really catchy song. And, and there'd be like three birds in an anvil, and only the upper percentile kids like myself would get it. It was, it was kind of like the jeopardy of my youth. The passage we are looking at today in a, albeit a much darker way, really plays out like a one of these things is not like the other. As we have this setting that Jesus has been arrested in the garden, in the dark of night, he's now taken in to, into Jerusalem, and he's being held trial at night. And those present at this trial are a bunch of witnesses for hire that can't get their stories right. An authority lording high priest. And outside is a disciple who's backed into the corner of denial by a little girl. And in the midst of these questionable characters stands the Son of God. 
In fact, of these, these four groups of men, the witnesses, the priest, the disciple, and Christ, Jesus is the only one who tells the truth in this passage. He is out of place. He's not like the other things. He is holiness surrounded by sin. He is the truth in a pool of lies, other people's lies. And he is the object of worship being treated as an object of scorn and contempt. Where perhaps he is in the right place biblically is that he is the lamb being led to slaughter. And in this passage, the meekness and humility of Christ are in full display. His willingness to subject subject himself to injustice and sin and mistreatment and ultimately death for the glory of God and the forgiveness of sins is front and center. And so let's read. Starting in verse 53 of Mark 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? <clears throat> but he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? <coughs> Excuse me. And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls, the high priest, came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither... Know or understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly, you're one of them, for you are Galilean. 
But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. The Holy Son of God humbles himself to death as he is being led to suffer. He suffers sin from inconsistent liars. Jesus hasn't, hasn't gotten to Pilate yet, but here his mistreatment has begun as he's surrounded by these inconsistent liars. Now, if you remember their plan, the plan of the, the chief priests and the scribes, the, the, their plan was to arrest Jesus quietly after the feast, that they would secretly take him in and then they would put him to death. Well, that didn't work. And now they have a crowd. And it's a crowd that's friendly to the chief priests, but nonetheless, it's a crowd. So there's eyes watching. So they got to make it look good. They need a conviction. They need to win the crowd over that Jesus of Nazareth deserves to die. But it, the funny thing is that it's really hard to convict an innocent man, much less a man who has never sinned, to find something worthy of death within him. So all these people, they start coming, they start saying this and that and the other thing about Jesus and his teaching. They're trying to fabricate stories. They're trying to twist his words, but they're unable among themselves to corroborate fiction. You would think it'd be pretty easy if you're set online that the first person says something, you're like, well, I'll just agree with them. But they can't even do that. They're, they are false and their fraudulence is exposed. But the dynamic of what they were trying to do, this, isn't a, this has not something that's expired. This has only continued. There are still those who take snippets of Jesus, rumors of what he may have said, Or those who have been content to play the equivalent of the childhood game of telephone. And the 15th kid down the row hears something that bears little resemblance of the truth, but they hold it with absolute confidence and boldly proclaim their rendition of Jesus without any actual knowledge of who he is. Have you encountered things like this today? Have you seen those who would twist the words and name and work of Christ to suit their own agenda, to agree with themselves. Whether you are here as a mature believer, as a new believer, or maybe someone who has not yet put their faith in Christ at all, there is a need for all of us to know the words and work of Christ.
this scene of false accusations and misrepresentations of Jesus stands as a call for us to know him well. It's a call for us to be in the Bible ourselves, that we would read these these accounts of Christ that the Lord has given us and preserved over time that we would be shaped by them, that we would be called to account by them. And maybe this would be a good spiritual discipline for you between Christmas and Easter, that you would read the four Gospels. Learn about his promises through the whole Bible. So that as we're approaching January, for those of you who, who are diligent in reading through your Bible every calendar year, that as you start again in January, going through whatever your plan is, going through the Old Testament, and saying, oh, that's talking about Jesus. And learn about Jesus from before he came as a baby. Learn about what Jesus does for us after he ascends to heaven. There's this, through his word, we can know Christ and we can know Christ through what he does for us. Do you know your salvation? Do you see the transforming work of the Lord in your life? Are you able to say this, this is what Jesus has done for me? He has saved you, sustained you, sanctified you. Let us know our Savior well, and let us be prepared, as the Lord was that day, to endure slander, knowing that we don't need to answer a fool according to his folly, but also knowing what is true and what makes it true. A lot of these people had a lot of confident assertions twisting the words of Christ. But their confidence did not make their statements true. Who God is and what God says is what makes it true. So Jesus is surrounded by these inconsistent sinners. And as he's being led to suffer, in addition to those inconsistent sinners, he's he's surrounded by an abusive swindler. The witnesses are getting him nowhere, so the high priest stands up. I just imagine a hush falling over the room. Oh, our high priest will deal with this fraud from Nazareth. He'll show him what's what. And so he stands up in a scene that just drips with tragic irony, irony that we'll see again next week as we look at the crucifixion. But here, the Prince of Peace who establishes justice from his throne forever and ever, and under whose judgment the high priest himself will one day find himself. The high priest stands up and looks at that prince of peace with disdain and pretends as though he, as the high priest, is the most influential, most powerful one in the room. 
having no idea of the account he will have to give to Christ on another day when Christ is the one asking him questions. He is acting in a condescending manner towards the Savior who lowered himself for us. And the high priest finally comes with the most direct question he can. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? This is an outstanding question. It's a question we all have to answer. Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? The fact that Jesus came was good and a teacher, that he built a movement. These are, this is all well settled among historians. What is not settled is whether or not he is the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of the Most High God. Jesus, who has been silent up to this point, knows the magnitude of this question, and he gives a very direct answer to a very direct question. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus rightly stating who he is. I am, which would ring in the ears of the Jewish audience. And that he'll be seated at the right hand of God, coming in the clouds of heaven. He is the Son of God. He is coming back. And all in that room, the priesthood of Israel, were no longer innocent of any level of ignorance as they clearly heard from Christ himself who he is. They could no longer say, we didn't know he was the Christ. We didn't recognize him as the Son of God. Because Jesus clearly told them who he is. But the knowledge of the Lord without faith in his promises does not amount to anything of worth. Those not willing to live by faith will not accept even the clearest presentation of the gospel. I look at this and I think of how many times I've been nervous to share my faith. Because what if I say something wrong and people reject me? Well, here Jesus said everything perfectly. I mean, I don't think anyone is going to give Jesus a copy of their evangelism explosion book or their four spiritual laws and be like, well, Jesus, maybe had you done this with the high priest, he would have gotten saved. He was not willing to see with faith. The room was not willing to see with faith. And I argue that the response of the high priest means that he was not willing to allow anyone else to see by faith. As he tears his clothes, what further witness do we need? You've, you've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? He rushes to the conclusion. He rebrands the words of Christ, which were fully true, and he rebrands them for his own benefit, for his own justification, for his own cause. 
And in so doing, he swindles the audience away from the truth of the words of Jesus, away from the truth of the words that could save their souls. He's offended and appalled by the truth. He sets forward a pretty interesting pattern. And I don't think he invented, but it's a pattern of abuse. A pattern used by abusers everywhere who would like to cloak their sin in religion. He uses his dramatic posturing to distract people from the truth. His emphatic tone to drive drive home the point that he's the one who knows what's going on. He invites them into his illusions, his lie, and under the influence of his own control. Once again, Jesus is surrounded by sin. I just want to say that those who seek control over others will veil their abuse with fabricated righteousness and self-justification. And just like the high priest here, they try to twist Scripture to conform and uphold themselves at the expense of others. They are not concerned with what God's Word actually says, but what they want the Bible to say in order to better suit their own needs. And if you are a person who loves to quote scripture before, during, and after the mistreatment of another person for your own good, that is wrong and the Lord despises it. And if you are someone who is currently being mistreated or has been mistreated, or held under the control of another who who may even be using God's precious word to try to justify their anger and their control and their selfishness and their power and their influence. I want you to know that what that person is doing or has done to you is wrong, that God does not approve of it, and that your pastors and elders and Stephen's ministry team, we all want to help you. Any way we can to get you the resources, to get you in touch with someone, to get you safe, we want to help you. This high priest, he knows the word of God inside and out. But he has been resistant to its fruit. It has not produced humility in him. It has not drawn him to the person of Christ. A knowledge of God and his word ought to lead us to repentance, to change and growth. This abusive swindler, he knows the syntax of God's word, but does not know God himself. He has missed God's covenant heart for the people of Israel and the nations. He should be with those who weep at the foot of the cross. 
He should be looking at Jesus in reverence, saying, I know what you have to do, and I don't want you to do it. But instead, he's putting on a show of deceptive teaching and manipulation, posturing to get his own way. He rushes the moment. He pushes for a decision. He doesn't follow Robert's rules of order here. He pushes through so that the saving words of Christ cannot set in and turns the crowd to abuse and mock the Son of God. And they spit on him. And they cover his face and strike him and say, tell us who did it, Jesus. You're a prophet. Which one of us hit you? And the guards receive him with blows. Meanwhile, down in the courtyard, we have a confronted coward. Peter, knowing Jesus' words about him, having a desire to rescue Jesus or, or to stand with him, completely missing the warning from the garden that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Peter, overconfident in his own fortitude, goes where he should not go for what feel like the best of motives. And he's now confronted with the toughest of all interrogators. There are people close to the chief priest all around him. There are guards all around him. And out of this group of those who would be intent on finding the others who helped Jesus, the most intimidating interrogator of all steps forward, a servant girl. A child. The man who tried to kill someone in the garden just a, a short time ago, is now face to face with someone he, he doesn't dare raise a sword to. A child. And she asks him, hey, aren't you, weren't you with the Nazarene? And he tries to play it off. Hey, look, I, I, didn't, I don't know what you're talking about. She sees him again. Hey, aren't you that guy? No, no, I'm not that guy. He denies it. And then finally... Others start joining in with the servant girl like, no, we, we can tell you're from Galilee. And he invokes a curse on himself and he swears, I do not know this man of whom you speak in the strongest way possible. He's gone from trying to say, I don't know what you're talking about, to now, I don't know who it is you're talking about. I've never heard of the guy. Peter was unprepared. Jesus had told the disciples, when I leave, I'm going to leave you with the helper the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you the words to say when you stand trial and stand before councils. And Peter, without the Holy Spirit, can't even give an answer to a child.
Oh, we need to always be ready to give reason for the hope we have. Are you ready to explain your affiliation with Jesus? Are you ready for those who would say, aren't you a Christian? Don't you go to church? But Peter, hearing the rooster crow, realizes his sin. He breaks down and weeps. J.C. Ryle, who by now, if you can't tell, I highly recommend his commentary on the book of Mark. He said, it, it is a truth of experience that ought to never be overlooked. That when a believer has once began to backslide and leave his faith, he seldom stops short of his first mistake. He goes on to say, a blindness seems to come over their eye, the eyes of his understanding. He appears to throw overboard his common sense and discretion. Like a stone rolling downhill, the further he goes on sinning, the faster and more decided is his course. Like David, he may begin with idleness and end with committing every possible crime. Like Peter, he may begin with cowardice. Go on to foolish trifling with temptation and end in disowning his own Christ. Peter felt confident enough that he slipped into where the guards were and was among those accusing Christ. Do not presume on your own strength. Do not tell yourself the lie that my flesh is much mightier than other people's flesh and therefore I can put myself here. I can go to those bars. I can go to those websites. I can watch those movies. I can process my anger in my own way. Do not presume on your own strength and put yourself in foolish places that are destined for failure. This passage ends with this scene. It is all too familiar that I think most of us can relate to. Peter realizes his sin, he sees the scope of his sin. And he's filled with great sorrow. It's appropriate that our sins should shock us. It should stop us in our tracks. It should produce grief and sorrow. Sin naturally leads to sorrow. The question that I have for you is that once your sin has led you to sorrow, where does your sorrow lead you to? Once your sin has led you to sorrow, where does your sorrow lead you to? Does your sorrow lead you to just heaps of guilt? Does your sorrow lead you to a do-goodism that just says, try harder, try harder, try harder? 
Or does your sorrow lead you to Christ? He says, I, I took your sin and I had it nailed to the cross with me. So that you can stand forgiven. And not just forgiven, but with sin removed from you. So that though your sins, though they were as scarlet, can now be white as freshly fallen snow. Let's pray. Father God, <clears throat> even in these moments where we do a deeper dive than normal into what Christ went through, I feel like we just scratch the surface over and over and over again and we just find new parts of the surface to scratch. Christ, you gave so much. And Lord, it just shocks me as I think that one sin led to Adam and Eve being evicted from the garden because sin cannot be in your presence. And here Christ is in this trial that absolutely no part of it was righteous and holy. And Christ, Lord, how you must have suffered just being around that much flagrant sin, being pushed at you and committed against you over and over again. And Christ, you remain silent. And for my sins you were bruised so that I can receive your righteousness, so that we can receive your righteousness. Lord, we thank you. Amen.